because I was grateful to no longer have the shakes. I was grateful to be alive and still have some people speaking to me. Uh, and I was uh, terribly concerned with conforming to everything that appeared to be orthodox. And whether I believed it or not, I said it. Uh, I've come now to where I would rather say I would like to be sufficiently grateful alcoholic. Uh, I'm one of these people, and there's probably half of the group here who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but the other half do. Uh, and uh, I'm one of these people who's inclined to feel that it was appropriate. In the actual fact, if I was as grateful as I should be, uh, I would be speechless. But in fact, <laughs> as you'll find out in the next hour, uh, I really am the kind of person who was so out of touch and still am with many of the good emotions that for me to indicate to you that I was around feeling as grateful as I should feel, I would be telling you an utter lie. I am grateful when I think about it. As my name might indicate, oh, what, what, wasn't Father Fahey's accent beautiful, that African accent? <laughs> As my name might indicate, I come from not too far from Father Fahey, uh, but I come from a place where if you're going to be an alcoholic, you probably have the best start in life. I come from Northern Ireland, and I'm a Northern Irish Catholic. If you want to see something that's really mixed up, meet a Northern Irish Catholic. You know, I used to understand perfectly what was going on over there. That's how sick I was. <laughs> See, I used to understand how my father could be anti-clerical and go to church every day. Uh, I used to understand how my cousins could be secretary of Marxist-Leninist revolutionary groups and still be at church every Sunday and identify themselves as Catholics. I used to understand that. Uh, somehow I don't anymore. So maybe I'm beginning to get well. I was born in Northern Ireland, as I indicated, and I, uh, uh, I believe that I had the perfect emotional grounds for being an alcoholic. Uh, I grew up with just about all the character defects that I still have. Long before I took a drink of alcohol, all I needed, I, I, you know these instant cake mixes where you just add water? Okay. All you had to do with me was add alcohol, and you had a real mouthful. For a long time, I thought my drinking experiences were hilariously funny when I came on the program first. I was very sick. Uh, as I go along in the program, I look back and I see a poor, scared individual uh, who was doing things under the influence of alcohol which he didn't have the guts to do when he was sober. And when I came on the program first, I was still so scared that I thought that was funny. You've all heard of trench humor, the kind of humor that they had in the British underground during the bombardment of London. People were extremely funny. People get extremely funny when they're scared. Uh, I was very funny when I came on AA first. Uh, my sponsor would like me to issue the following disclaimer that my views do not represent the views of Alcoholics Anonymous, nor is my sponsor. <laughs> my sponsor knows me. <laughs> Funny. I, I've gone through so many attempts to please my sponsor, uh, and none of them worked. It still doesn't work. Early in my time in the program, oh, I came aboard the program, and of course I was Seamus O'Connor, but not when I got to the program. I drank as Seamus O'Connor. Uh, uh, but when I came on the program, 
There's not a hell of a lot of anonymity in Seamus O. Uh, you know, I've had friends call me from Southern California to say, I see you speaking. Uh, you know, not too many people know people called Seamus. And then most of those who do can't even pronounce it. But I remember trying to please my sponsor after I was about three months on the program by saying, you know, I don't really care if people know who I am. And I was beginning to lose my concern for my anonymity. And he says, or that's got to be the height of self-centeredness. He says, you think anonymity is to protect your anonymity. Anonymity is to protect the program of Alcoholics Anonymous from half-drunk SOBs like you walking around saying you're a member. <laughs> I, I, I still can't please him. I still can't please him. But I... I think maybe I'm getting well. It's not as important anymore. Uh, one of these uh, Freudian analysts would have a great time trying to figure out uh, what made me an alcoholic. Uh, see, I started off and I went through school and I was supposed to be a physician. And then I got into medical school and I was doing all right in medical school. And then I decided to go to seminary. And I'm not sure why I went to seminary. Uh, my family wasn't all sure why I went to seminary. And some of my girlfriends couldn't understand why I went to seminary. But I'll bet you a Freudian analyst would maybe hit it right on the head. I was scared of all the freedom out there in the competitive world. And for me, seminary was a way of crawling into a room. Uh, I'm not saying that's why other people go to seminary, uh, but I suspect it's probably why I did. You know, even in seminary, I felt like a fish out of water because I used to be surrounded in seminary by people who were People who were religious, surprisingly enough. <laughs> People with a lot of faith were in seminaries. And I was in there, and I pretended like I had a lot of faith. I was always very appropriate. Damn, if there's one thing you could never accuse me of being sober, and that was inappropriate. I was appropriate. I was a chameleon. I became whatever I was sitting on. If I was in medical school, and medical students had a little raunchy reputation in the British Isles, I was the worst. And then I went to seminary, and I was the most appropriate seminarian you've ever met. Except that I didn't feel the things that a lot of other people were feeling. On the morning of an ordination, all the guys, most of them were up all night, couldn't get to sleep. I overslept. Uh, after ordination, everyone was walking around looking very aesthetic and, and uh, uh, distributing blessings to the family and, and you know, being really caught up in the faith experience of ordination to the priesthood. Uh, I went up and took a nap. Uh, so there was something wrong right from the beginning, but I couldn't see that. Uh, my whole, uh, my whole history as, uh, as a priest, I came out to uh, Sacramento. And uh, as a priest in Sacramento, uh, I was very excited by the new experience and by the, the uh, status that I had uh, for about three or four months. And then I started getting bored. Then I started looking around, and a lot of Alkies have had this experience. You look around and you see the organization that you're a part of, and you try to work out the system. And I worked out the system. And I figured that 
I'd give myself about ten years to get to the top of it. And I, I did a pretty good job. I became an alcoholic, but I also got pretty close to the top of the system. Uh, dangerously close to the top of the system for the diocese. I uh, was constantly restless. I wanted something new at all times. I tried different occupations within the priesthood. Uh, I tried different other things within the priesthood. Uh, and I tried alcohol. And of all of them, alcohol probably worked the best. Because with alcohol, I began to feel comfortable, satisfied. I even, with alcohol, began to like myself. Now, I had experienced this earlier, like in my late teens with alcohol, but for some reason, seminaries disapproved of people drinking uh, while they were in seminary. So, somehow, I got my alcoholism postponed for a few years. But then when I got out into a diocese, and I think uh, from listening to Hillary last night, you probably get the impression that uh, priests are pretty free and pretty independent. And that's pretty much true. A lot of people don't have that impression of them. But they really are pretty much independent professionals operating within uh, a framework of a diocese. So you, you can get away with an awful lot if you're irresponsible. So I, I did. <laughs> and just about the time that I can now identify myself as being in the throes of alcoholism, the diocese decided I was one of the up-and-coming young men, and they sent me off for postgraduate studies. And it's a strange coincidence that these two things happened exactly the same summer that I can identify. I still was able to keep up the impression I was able to stage things that were rather spectacular, you see. Uh, if, if we were going to have a successful conclusion to a fundraising drive, I would make it coincide with the bishop's visit to the parish. You know, stage it properly. If you're going to do something, you may as well be seen to have done it, too. And uh, the result was it, it, it worked, because people were not used to having a family like we were on. The priesthood was not full of phonies like I was. And a phony like me was very dangerous within the priesthood. Anyhow, graduate school, God, if there's one place, if, if you want to really go back to drinking ever, go to graduate school. You can get away with murder for a long time. You don't have to show up for class. Uh, people expect you to be responsible, so, that you, you know, you can study in your the room or in the library or in the pub or any place you wanted. And that's what I did. And for about two years, my alcoholism progressed. Uh, some of the things that happened during that time uh, were insane, but I had to learn afterwards that they're not the insanity of alcoholism. They're just the insanity of a drunk. And there's a, there's a real difference I found out later. I had it pointed out to me later. The dumb, silly, insane things I did when I was drunk, I confused for a long time with the insanity of alcoholism. But they were both happening at the same time. Uh, I was living in a residence hall for priests in Washington, D.C., and to most people's mind, that would be about as staid a place as you could imagine. Forget it. It wasn't. Not with me then. I raised more hell in that place than any undergraduate dormitory. Uh, the, just picture, picture four adult priests at two o'clock in the morning on the fourth floor of a residence hall four priests and priest faculty of the university, making bets about driving a golf ball through a window at the end of the corridor. <laughs> and that wasn't the worst part of it. It was when we actually did it. 
And can you imagine what a two-iron shot, four two-iron shot sounds like off a wooden hardwood floor at two o'clock in the morning and a golf ball ricocheting off the wall? That kind of stuff is probably the insanity of drunkenness. But the strange thing about it was, in the morning, nobody in the residence hall had the slightest difficulty deciding who had done it. <laughs> they knew exactly. And uh, fortunately, two of the four of us is now on AA. So that's not too bad. When I came back to the Diocese of Sacramento, I was now trained to be a confidential advisor and a legal advisor to the bishop. Uh, and that's not a very good place for an alcoholic. It's not even a very good place for a drunk. Uh, if you can picture the hierarchy of a diocese, you have the bishop, and then after the bishop comes the chancellor. The chancellor is the hatchet man. He is the man, he's the business manager, the personnel manager, and the general executioner in the diocese. Okay. Now, hungover as an alky, shaking at the hands, shaking at the knees, with the stiff neck in the morning, and the bloodshot eyes, and the swollen face, having to walk the gauntlet past the bishop's office and the chancellor's open door to get to my own den every morning. And that's when I discovered the morning drink. I needed it. I needed it. Because when I would wake up in the morning and think of what I had to do, I got scared. Then it got to be that I could not get to sleep because I was so scared. Did any of you have those hot and cold flashes at four o'clock in the morning that go on until you finally give up and decide you're going to have to get up? And no matter how much booze you drink, it will not quell that fear that's inside of you. Okay, I got into that. And I stayed in that state of private hell for about a year and a half. And finally, after a long binge, one weekend, I put in a call to the man who was presently my sponsor. I knew he was in AA. My experience with AA, actually, prior to this, had been very minimal, but very significant. There, there must have been something inside of me early on that suspected I might need this organization, because I remember very dramatically every contact I had with Alcoholics Anonymous. I took an uncle to it when I was 15. He died about six months ago. He had 25 years on the program. When I was in seminary, we had one talk by four members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we had Friday night talks from every group under the sun. But one Friday night, we had a talk from four members of Alcoholics Anonymous and I remembered in great detail the story of one of those men. And years later, when I got on the program and I opened the big book, and about all that could make sense to me was the personal stories at the back, I came across that man's story, and I remembered it in the greatest detail. Career officer. He had lived in Dublin. He had come into the seminary. And for some reason, every detail of his story remained with me. So there may have been some kind of a precognition on my part that I might meet this organization at some time. And when I heard, I had no question in mind about where I should call. I think there's some advantages, you know, to being a second-generation AA. I think maybe it's a little easier. And I'm very grateful that there was some seeds sown in me, or I might not have found sobriety. <clears throat> now, when I came to AA, I was a intellectual, 
And an intellectual is very important to, to understand intellectuals. They're people who are educated way beyond their capacity. That's what an intellectual is. And I came to AA as an intellectual and as a priest, and I had two strikes against me right there. And as a priest, you see, to come in to where lay people, some of them, even Protestants, are talking about God. Uh, you have, you know, your defense mechanism is up. It's like a physician going into some place where somebody's practicing herbal medicine. Physicians don't like that. Okay, so as a priest coming into a group of lay people who are talking about religion and spirituality, yeah, I didn't know any difference at the time. Uh, I thought they were talking religion, and I almost ran. And if somebody hadn't said some rather vulgar words that night at that meeting, I would never have stayed. Because otherwise I would have assumed that it was some kind of revival. And I was death and violence. I could not stand them. And the last thing I needed at that point, after being around the priesthood for eight years, the seminary for four or five years before that, the last thing I needed was some more religion to my way of thinking. Of course, what I didn't understand was that I had lost God, I had lost spirituality, I had lost... I maybe never had it, I'm not sure. I may have as a little kid. But here's the guy with a local franchise on God <laughs> going in here to this group of amateurs. You've got to understand, that's very difficult. That's why, as Hillary said, it takes them about three times longer in treatment. So, when I went to AA, I was hurting, I was hurting bad, I was, uh, I came in crying, uncle, and I would have done anything the first night. In fact, I did. The first night I went in, and I saw the 12 steps, and I took them all, right there, <laughs> and I went to about three meetings and figured out what made it work, and then took it away and decided to work it. And that didn't work worth the damn. So about three weeks later, uh, drunk again, uh, I come along to uh, seek help from a sponsor again. And he said, well, this time I think you ought to go to this place. It's down uh, in a beautiful valley down by uh, Sonoma. So uh, I went down to this place, and the guy that was there didn't give me any kind, loving understanding at all. Matter of fact, if any of you know him, he talks a lot behind your back so you can hear. He said things to my sponsor like, uh, I don't know if there's any hope for him, I think he's too dishonest. I was standing about ten feet away, but it was one of these stage whispers. Uh, a little later, he said to my sponsor, he said, Joe, I think... Uh, I think what will have to be on his tombstone is he thought he was being a nice guy. It's all that will be on it. He was mean and dirty. He said a lot of things like that that hurt me. He did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he said that uh, I got a little bit of an idea of what sobriety was. And I began to get a little comfortable and I began to realize that I did not understand with the damn what Alcoholics Anonymous was trying to tell me. And I didn't understand about God or spirituality or anything else. Because a lot of people, when they're trying to tell you what the program has done for them, take the approach of how it has worked for them. And I took a little bit different approach because I made about every mistake that is possible for a stupid intellectual to make. So I'm going to tell you how it doesn't work. Because I tried all those ways. And, and I made every mistake possible. And 
I'm glad that on the program with some people who made it and did not have to take a drink after their first meeting, uh, I was too stupid. I was too conceited. I was too dishonest to have that kind of success. I did eventually get the hang of the program, and fortunately I have quite a few years of sobriety now. But at the beginning, I had to make every mistake that was possible to make because I would not listen. I would not hear. See, I saw, it said in the first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And I said, okay, I admit I'm powerless over alcohol. So I figured that all I had to do then was leave alcohol alone and then I would have power over it. <laughs> Sounds like some of you people got sandbagged too. Yeah. Because I heard that people said that if you don't take the first drink, everything's going to be peachy. I thought then all I have to do is use my willpower and not take the first drink and everything will be peachy. And that ain't exactly how they meant it. Because I didn't take the first drink after I started drinking. I took the first drink when I was dry. And I had to come to realize that I am insane about alcohol before I take the first drink, not just after it. I never heard of any alcoholic who's been sober for a while taking the first drink after they have alcohol in them. No. You take the first drink and you don't have any alcohol in you. Which means that I was insane before alcohol ever crossed my lips. Because I did take the first drink on two occasions after I came to the program. And I picked up that glass and drank that drink and cannot use the excuse that I was under the influence of alcohol when I did that. I was just under the influence of insanity when I did that. But I didn't think that that's what it meant, you see. I didn't realize, or I didn't read, or I didn't understand what it says in the last paragraph of page 46 of the big book. That there are times when the alcoholic has no effective mental defense against the first drink. I thought I could resist the first drink, and as long as I resisted the first drink by my willpower, everything would be fine. I had to find out that there was no power inside of Seamus O'Connor, intellectual or willpower that can prevent me and my insanity from picking up that glass. And that was a big revelation to me. Then I came along and I saw unmanageability. Unmanageability. My sponsor told me about unmanageability my first trip down to the Valley of the Moon. And I said, well, yeah, I agree my life was unmanageable. But I didn't understand what that meant. I thought it meant those things in my desk that I hadn't taken care of. And you know, the, the ones that needed some thought and some decision that I'm going to do someday, I'm feeling better. And they were all in a big, deep drawer. And I thought that's what unmanageability meant. And he said, unmanageability in every area. And I said, well, now that really doesn't apply to me, Joe. He says, well, uh... For example, how about your social life? I said, Joe, most people who never took a drink couldn't manage my social life the way I'm doing. None of them know about each other. And I wasn't even supposed to be having a social life at that time. Joe's comment was, that's not manageability, that's a juggling act. He says, that's why we keep juggling acts in circuses, they're freaks. And then I went along thinking that 
You know, as long as my bills were paid and my work was in order and various other aspects of my life were kind of straightened out, that then I was manageable. And then I met somebody around the program one day who said, Ah, there's another level of unmanageability you haven't even touched yet. He says, there's all kinds of things in you that are unmanageable. He said, when somebody says, Hi, good morning, Seamus, how are you doing? You feel good, right? And if they're so preoccupied they walk past you, you feel bad. He says, you're a yo-yo as far as what way you think about yourself. He says, you have to take a gallop poll every day to find out whether you like yourself or not. And that's true. I had a totally unmanageable opinion of myself. My opinion of me depended upon your opinion of me. And there's nothing much more unmanageable than that. I was still feeling depressed. And I couldn't see that that was unmanageable. You know, if I'm feeling depressed and I don't want to feel depressed, that's unmanageable. But I didn't understand that. I was still thinking unmanageable meant that work that I hadn't finished in my desk. It came to the second step. I don't know if any of you have done this or not, but, you know, I skipped the second step entirely. I did. I skipped the second step entirely for about a year and a half. Because as long as I saw the word power greater than yourself or ourselves, I immediately assumed the power greater than me was God. Now that's a little grandiose, if you want to think about that. Some power greater than James O'Connor must be God? Come on. I'm right up there. But for a long time I assumed that any power greater than me was God. And then somebody explained to me what it was that Bob and Bill discovered. They didn't discover that there was a God for the first time. They didn't discover that people drank too much for the first time. I mean, they discovered that a few alcoholics together could be a power greater than any individual. And that in some way God worked through them. And a lot of us here are evidence of that. What I could not do alone, I could do with several other alcoholics, which I think is probably close to the essence of what Bob and Bill discovered. And that that group of other alcoholics is an instrument of God. But I went happily along thinking that uh, if I could just get religion again, I wouldn't need alcoholics anonymous. That's the effect of skipping the second step for me. I went around for a long time in this program saying that I was working the third step. Uh, if you've got some people that really care about you and you're going around telling people for a year that you're working the third step, uh, they're going to tell you some of these days, what are you working on? <laughs> I used to wonder why I kept getting a fisheye from 15 and 20 year members of AA when I said I was working, I was on the third step since last January. <laughs> And finally, one guy did me a tremendous favor. He said, if you're on the third step, have you made the decision? 
See, I thought for a long time the third step says we turned our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. I could have sworn that's what the third step said. And this guy says, did you make a decision yet? I said, what are you talking about? This isn't the third step at all. All it says is that you made a decision to do this. He said, it doesn't say you do it. And I says, well, what do you mean? He says, with your self-will, how can you? He picked up the 12 by 12, I remember, and there's a little bit in the 12 by 12, which by coincidence, <laughs> happens to be in italics. And in that it says that our problem was the misuse of self-will, and that we previously approached our problems by bombarding them with self-will. He said, you're such a walking house of cards with defects. He said, there's no way you can turn your will in your life over at this point. He says, all you can do is make a decision that you're going to do that. I thought about that for a while. And the next time I met him, he says, you still working the third step? He says, if you work in the third step, where's your pencil? And I, I've, I've come to realize now, I didn't understand what in the hell he was talking about at the time. I've come to realize now that what he was doing was giving me a very kind kick on the rear end and getting me off my dead ass about making decisions. You see, now I come to see it that it's very much the same as if I sat here and says, uh, I've made a decision, I'm going to go to San Francisco. I've made a decision, I'm going to San Francisco. 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 And a year later, yeah, where are you doing? I'm going to San Francisco. I'm going to San Francisco. I had to get drunk to break that pattern. He very kindly explained to me later that I was confusing the third step with the eleventh step. Because I thought in the third step that I was not only supposed to, but that I was able to completely run my life according to the will of my higher power. And with all my character defects, there was no way in hell I could do that. I used to sit and try self-hypnosis. Did any of you ever do that? It's like having constipation. You sit, you sit there and you say to yourself, I'm turning it all over. Take it. Please take it. I'm turning it all over. Oh, you know. For a year, I didn't know what he was talking about. And within five minutes of doing that, you know what happened. I was back with my own self-will running everything again because of my defects. So finally, I got a pencil. Now, I've come to believe that... I did, I played the cards that I had as well as I could. So I don't condemn myself for all of my mistakes and my misunderstandings and those defects which prevented me from seeing the simple program. When I did the first step, or when I did the fourth step, 
I put the manuscript along to my sponsor. He told me to go home. <laughs> I had probably put on paper one of the greatest evil tricks you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to have defects, they've got to be the best <laughs> and the most. And I had written a catalog of defects and a catalog of assets. I'd been told that that was the appropriate thing to do, so naturally I did that too. I wasn't going to be wrong. My sponsor wouldn't even read it. He wouldn't let me read it to him. He wasn't going to take up a week of his time. <laughs> and he told me that why don't I look in the big book and really find out how to take an inventory. Now the, the fifth step that I took with my sponsor was a fantastic experience. He picked me up in his car and we drove around. And many times I, I really was afraid that he was going to tell me get out. I really was. You know, if I read this one, for sure he's going to let me out. He's going to tell me to walk. And no, he just would be very encouraging. Sometimes he'd throw in some little tidbit of his own. Uh, and for an old man, he had an interesting life. Uh, and, and it made me feel very much at ease. And afterwards, guess what? He said, you feel like having a cup of coffee with me? That doesn't sound like anything very golden or very profound or very consoling. But when somebody has heard all of what you or I have considered to be the greatest pile of human garbage, and they still want to have a cup of coffee with you, I think at that moment I probably had more self-acceptance than I'd ever had in my life before. I read the big book a number of times. I've tried to read it carefully, and I've tried not to let my intellectuality stand in its way. And I've come to believe now that instead of the shopping list of character defects that I listed at that time, that I have a lot fewer character defects. Now, that doesn't mean I've gotten better. What that means is I think I'm calling them more by their right name now. And I suspect that if I can get more honest, get a little more insight, stay around this program, stay around you people for a bit longer, I'm going to find out that maybe I just have one big defect. That's like a crack in the pot. You know, that's a defect. You buy a new pot and it's got a crack in it. That's a defect. I suspect that there may be just one big defect in me, that it has been there from the beginning, that all of my other defects arise from it, that my use of alcohol in some way made it feel more comfortable, And I suspect that that big defect is what the big book indicates it is. Fear. A deep down fear. That has patterned everything in my life. You know, when I quit alcohol, and got in this program, I thought that I would be well. Because I didn't listen when people told me that this is a disease and it's a physical, it's mental and emotional and it's spiritual. 
psychophysically well. It took me quite a while to identify the fact that I still had the disease. Until one guy at a meeting one night reminded me of what the word disease means. It's a disease, a lack of ease, a discomfort. And I have felt that dis-ease since I can remember. And after I quit thinking, I really began to get in touch with my lack of comfort inside of my own skin. As I work the program and get into the steps, and as I work the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth step, those are calculated for me to remove and decrease my dis-ease with myself. I didn't understand that I would really get in touch with my discomfort after I stopped using the anesthetic alcohol. But I've come now to where I am getting pretty aware of this. There's a lot of things that I have said all my life and I never understood them. I never understood the word responsibility. Responsibility, you know, I always thought meant duty. Like when I was told that I should go away for three or four weeks to a place in order to dry out and start getting well, one of my response was, I have so many things to do. And I'll bet you most alcoholics have experienced something like that. They have so many things they must do rather than save their lives. See, I didn't realize that responsibility really means being able to respond to my own needs. And that at times responsibility must, be, must come before duty to others. I must get well before I'm any good to anyone else. But I did not have the ability to respond to my own needs. I was irresponsible. I was bad emotionally. I was bad emotionally. The only emotions I felt for years were anger and resentment. I didn't feel love. I didn't feel sorrow. I could stand at the grave of somebody that I should have loved. And I would have had to act my emotional self. I was so bad emotionally. Thanks to this program, and thanks to these steps, I have begun to become alive emotionally. Begun to come alive. I have some good spontaneous emotions. I no longer have to respond to what you expect of me. I respond to what is a vital need for me and my survival. My opinion of me no longer depends upon your opinion of me. I have some response ability. I found out that in the sixth and seventh step, which for me at the present time are probably the most difficult steps in the program, to become entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. I sat around for a long time wondering when I would be entirely ready. <laughs> I'd never be entirely ready. And then somebody said, sometimes you know that you're entirely ready when you're willing to do something about them. I used to say that I was diplomatic when I would color a story a little bit, take the edge off the story a little bit, take an edge off the truth so that it wouldn't hurt another person so much, that they would have a better reaction to it. They would have a better reaction to me. I edited the truth that I gave to everybody. And I found out why I did that. 
fear. I will become entirely ready to have God remove my fear when I'm willing to start acting differently. To tell the truth as it really is. There's nothing that scares me more. The truth about me, to tell you that, Tell me about the fear I experience sometimes these days, after many years of sobriety, when I'm supposed to be telling you how serene I am. That scares me. Because my natural inclination is for people to say, well, he doesn't have much of a problem if he's still feeling discomfort. See, I don't care. I have to respond to my own need. I have to be responsible. I have to tell the truth. And there are days when I have bad days, there are days when I am afraid. But now you see, I have something that I discovered in this program, in this fellowship, that is the only antidote known to that deep pool of fear that is inside of me and probably inside of some of you. And that is faith. I used to think that it was wise to be cautious and to really distrust people. And I used to say things like, well, after people prove that they can be trusted, then we trust them. Well, that's the way a lot of people think. And I thought that way because if you don't do it that way, you're likely to get hurt. But I couldn't see that by my distrustful attitude I was hurting myself more than anybody else could ever hurt me. Because in order to have that attitude, I had to be numb emotionally. I had to look on all you people as objects. And as soon as I begin to distrust you, as soon as I put the burden of proof on you to prove yourself trustworthy to me, I've become sick and isolated. There's no guy on the program who sidled up to me one night. I guess I had said some asinine intellectual thing in a meeting, you know. People in the area have this great way, as you probably all find out, you know, of saying things, uh, little asides to you. Uh, you better listen to them. <laughs> you better listen to them, because those are usually the real home truths. And this guy came up to me and he says, uh, you used to be a priest, right? And he says, I heard something the other day and I, I, I thought I'd pass it on to you. He said, uh, it's about the crucifixion. We all know the story of crucifixion in general, at least. I knew it in great detail, but I never knew... It was funny, none of the explanations people gave me ever really made sense to me. You know, I heard them say, you know, I was redeemed by his blood, and I was washed in the blood of a lamb, and you know, all these phrases. And they really never hit me here. They never hit me here. And this guy says, look at it this way. On Sunday, Palm Sunday, he had a ticker tape parade done through downtown Jerusalem. They wanted to make him king. That's on Sunday. He says, you talk about a week going to hell. <laughs> Everybody you have trusted, all your friends, just progressively do dirtier and dirtier tricks on you all week long. One of them sells out for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, your best and closest buddy says he never even heard of you. <laughs> and you wind up, you know, <laughs> typically, you wind up the only person there is your mother, you know, <laughs> the great enabler. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't mean that. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, you wind up on a Friday evening, you know, and I've heard myself saying, boy, this was really a crummy week. <laughs> but if you really want to look at a crummy week, 
And on Friday afternoon, you wind up nailed to a That was a bad week. But then he goes on to make his point. He says, Now, wouldn't you think at that point that he would say to himself, I'm never going to trust anybody again. That's what most of us would say, or be inclined to say. And all he said was, they just don't understand. They've, they've got the story wrong. You know, they don't understand. And there was no bitterness. He didn't say, boy, everybody's going to have to really prove themselves to me from now on before I trust them. He didn't say that. Because, in fact, the next person that approached him came without very good credentials. He was a murderer and a thief, right? And he didn't say, you don't look like a very savory character to me. I've just been royally screwed here by everybody and I'm not about to get involved with you. No. He received him openly and trustingly again. And this old guy says to me, he says, when you think about it, maybe that's a big lesson. Because he never reversed his presumption about people. He never switched it over to saying, people are going to have to prove themselves before I'm going to trust them again. No. He trusts people, period. Because once you switch that presumption, once I switch that presumption, I become ill. I become isolated. I become fearful. I become once again alone and self-directed. And I've been there. And I know how scary that is. I remember being so lonely and so scared and so paranoid I couldn't go to the grocery store. I couldn't answer the telephone. I couldn't answer the door. I wouldn't even draw the brakes. And I don't want to ever be there again. And if your attitude of mind is that I trust and that maybe I get hurt when I trust, okay, but there's no way you can hurt me as much. No way anybody can hurt me as much as I would hurt myself once I go to the opposite and distrust you. This trust, for me, is something that doesn't come easy. It really is what faith for me is about. Faith in the group, faith in the fellowship, and through the fellowship, faith in a higher power. And I know that my illness is arrested as long as I do not become isolated again. I know that there is some miracle when alcoholics are gathered together in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that there is a miracle happening there. I know that where two or three of us have gathered, there he is in the midst of us. I believe this because I have experienced this, as most of us have here. For this I am grateful. And I know that as long as I can stay plugged into that miracle, by my open, trusting attendance at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, by working the program that you all work, that my sickness will never return to me. This I do believe. And on this my life depends. Before I long to be here today, I thank you all.